What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 96. It helps me to actually work with the dirt and to plant seeds and to know that probably not all of them will germinate, and that's okay. Jeff Chu is a writer, reporter, and editor currently serving as teacher-in-residence at Central Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's the co-host, alongside Sarah Bessie, of Evolving Faith, a yearly conference for wanderers and misfits looking to explore faith. Jeff recently graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary, where he was a farmhand at Princeton's Farminary, a place where theological education is integrated with small-scale regenerative agriculture to train faith leaders who are conversant in areas of ecology, sustainability, and food justice. Before that, Jeff was on staff at Fast Company and Time Magazine. He's the author of the book, Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and many more. He lives in Michigan with his husband and still continues to write regularly, most recently for his new newsletter, Notes of a Make-Believe Farmer, which is available at jeffchu.substack.com. I remember way back to like the year after I came out of the closet, back when I was not really integrated at all into this world of of faith and, and queerness. Uh, Jeff Chu was one of the first people that I ever heard speak at the 2014 Gay Christian Network Conference in Portland, Oregon. And I remember thinking at the time, this man seems wise, quiet, gentle, and wise. And I've been a really big fan of his work ever since. So it's quite the treat to have him on Queerology today. We're talking a lot about his time at the farminary and things that he learned that can maybe apply to us today in this moment during this weird time of, of COVID and, and quarantining and, and all of those things. Jeff is someone that I really look up to, and I hope that you'll find this conversation as wonderful as I found it. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Jeff, hi, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. 
Yeah, it's so good to have you on the show. I was I was thinking back to like back like four years ago when I started Queerology, you were one of the first few people that I thought of of like, I want to get Jeff on the show someday. And so here we are in season four, <laughs> making that happen. So it's really good to have you. So I'll start with a question I ask everyone. Uh, how do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I guess you don't start with the softball questions. No. <laughs> I guess on my better days, I remember that I'm a beloved child of God and that my only source of dignity and identity is God. My faith has changed a lot over the years, but it has always been inescapably interwoven with my identity. Uh, I'm a child of a devoutly Baptist Chinese family, and my paternal grandparents uh, were hugely influential in my upbringing. My paternal grandfather was a preacher, and my paternal grandmother was a Bible teacher. And in Chinese families, grandkids, when they can, when they have the geography to help them, spend a lot of time with their grandparents. So my grandparents taught me that I was Christian first, and even though I was born in America, I was Chinese second, and that God and family were really the only things that mattered. So in both cases, my identity did not and could not exist apart from that of others. The faith of my childhood meant that I had to deny another part of my identity when I realized that I was gay, because the God of my childhood and the family I was born into couldn't accept that facet of who I am. As I've grown older and into a faith of my own, I would say that's changed. But my identity is still very much communal and I think defined by relationship. So still first with God, but then also with my husband and with my parents and my sister and my nephews and my friends and my ancestors and my parishioners and my neighbors. I guess what that answer tells you is that I'm also a writer and like all writers, I need an editor because that was really annoyingly long and complicated. No, I mean, what well, we're, we're two minutes and most people, a lot of people take five to seven minutes to answer that question. So, <laughs> Okay, I feel a little better. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in pretty good shape. But I, I mean, I'm curious, you, you mentioned so kind of that how... I mean, you started off with, with this very strong message, Christian first, Chinese second, which then made it so that your your sexuality couldn't really take up much space. And you say that, that, that that's changed. And, and I'm curious, kind of what has that journey been in that change? I imagine much has happened um, to allow that part of you to, to take up more space. So when I was in college, I was in the most conservative Bible study on campus. I dated women, and I realized that being an evangelical Christian allows you a lot of cover when you are trying to figure out your sexuality, because I wasn't supposed to touch a girl anyway. I didn't need another excuse for why I didn't want to kiss my girlfriend, right? I could hide behind strict theological reasons. At a certain point, that becomes untenable. I moved to London for grad school, and that was when I started exploring more. And as I started exploring my sexuality more in a physical way, I couldn't figure out how to reconcile it with my faith. So I think like a lot of people, I spent some time in a wilderness of sorts. I stepped away from the church. I stepped away from my faith, really. The Bible went on the bookshelf. And I just tried to shut that part of my life down. It wasn't until I moved back to the U.S. after a few years and fully came out 
and spent a couple more years in the wilderness that I stumbled into the back of a church where I heard things that I hadn't heard before. I heard women in the pulpit. I heard a lot more about love. The pastor in that church ends every sermon on God's love. And at first, I didn't know what to do with that because love was more of an intellectual concept, I think, than it was something that I felt. I felt loyalty. I felt duty. I felt responsibility. And all those things can and should be related to love. But I didn't understand what love was until I started hearing that preaching and doing some work to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. Another transition point was uh, 2011, 2012. I had already been dating my boyfriend, who is now my husband, for six years at that point. But that was when I started working on my book. Because as a journalist, what I know how to do is gather stories. I know how to ask questions. I don't necessarily know how to answer them. So traveling around the country, asking invasive questions of others and how they've dealt with questions of faith and sexuality was in some ways a really selfish venture. Yeah, I had a book contract and that was great. But really what I was trying to do was understand my experience through the experiences of others. And going to all kinds of churches and meeting people from across the theological spectrum, that was a really unusual opportunity. Most people don't get to travel around on someone else's dime for an entire year asking nosy questions. And I think that was really helpful for me. I wasn't ready to ask those questions of myself yet, but I could ask them of others. And through their testimonies, I could process who I wanted to be and who I felt God was calling me to be. Uh, calling wasn't really something I was talking about at that point. It's something that I've really grown into more recently. It's a really confusing concept when you're not even sure God exists, right? This is, I think, jumping ahead a few years, but I mean, you just got out of seminary. So that's that's quite a shift. <laughs> yeah, that was a shift. I never wanted to go into the family business. I think I saw a lot of the ways in which it affected my dad and his siblings growing up as a preacher's kid. I think my dad felt like his father always had time for other people and less for his own family. And I saw my grandfather in the pulpit and I saw my grandfather dealing with church people. And then I saw my grandfather at home. And again, I couldn't reconcile those pictures. So seminary was not something I wanted on that level. And then it's weird for someone who's struggling with his faith to decide, okay, I'm going to spend three years just reading about faith and thinking about faith all day long. That just seemed unfathomable to me. But that's where the calling piece of it comes in, right? Uh, my husband and I went through an 18-month, I guess maybe 15-month discernment process, again, with the help of other people. Like when I look back at my life, so much of it is about community and communal formation. We put together a team of six people who walked with me and with us through a process of asking big questions and hard questions. I would talk to each of those folks once every six to eight weeks, and they would grill me on why I thought I was being called to seminary, what I thought I would get out of it, what it would do to my marriage. And that was a deeply deeply powerful experience. First of all, to have people invest in me like that. And secondly, to 
hear what other people were seeing in me that I couldn't necessarily see in myself at that point. And the fact that my husband was willing to go with me on this journey has been one of the greatest testimonies to, I guess, God's provision. I mean, I, I sound like such an evangelical. I guess you can't <laughs> entirely take out the, the stamp of evangelicalism on someone who grows up in that culture. But we met online and there was nothing in either of our profiles about faith. So the fact that we ended up going to church together and being married by a Christian minister and then embarking on this seminary journey together, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. You mentioned this, this question of calling, right? And, and kind of the strangeness of that word, the, the strangeness even of that, of that concept of, of God's calling and this communal formation of, of folks who came around you and asked you, you said, grilled you on this idea of calling. I'm curious, how, how did you answer those questions? I imagine that was an evolving process, but I think calling can be such kind of a, a nebulous concept. How did you work with that? So one of the gifts of being a journalist is that you get pretty good at evading questions you don't want to answer. You know the game. Your whole job is to ask questions that other people can't avoid, but not everyone has that training. So I would say the first six months of the process, and honestly, a lot of my adult life, I've been able to give reasonably compelling, polite answers that don't actually answer the question. I don't think God works like that. There are ways in which God has repeatedly showed up, especially through other people, and forced me to confront things in myself. Some of those are good things. Some of those are bad things. Sometimes it has been people on my discernment team or friends saying, no, this is a real gift that you have that you have to accept. Sometimes it's been a friend saying, here's something that's not right that I'm seeing that's going on in you. And if you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, and I think it was Simone Weil who said that attention is the highest form of prayer. If you're paying attention, then eventually the picture starts to fill itself in. You start getting a little bit of clarity. I also don't want to give the impression that calling is like this one-time thing, right? Like I never had a road to Damascus moment where God struck me down and forced me to confront something in that way. For me, I've come to understand calling more as a day-by-day -day or even moment-by-moment -moment thing. And sometimes the call feels bigger, like maybe you should think about going to seminary. And sometimes it's smaller, it's more intimate, it's more, please don't be an asshole in this moment. That's not what that person needs right now. I'm calling you to show a little bit of compassion. So I think there are all these different layers to call. And ultimately the questions are, who do I wanna be and who is God calling me to be? So I re recently started receiving spiritual direction and it's super annoying <laughs> i really hate doing it and it's been one of the most beautiful things but i know pretty much in every session my spiritual director will come around to asking the question in the most annoying circumstance which is what is god's invitation for you in this and my best friend who's a pastor he does the same thing uh, we've had these tearful heart to hearts where I'm walking through a really difficult situation and the question will pop up again. 
sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly. What is God's invitation for you in this? And I think that's what calling is in all these instances, right? What is God's invitation to you as a husband? What is God's invitation to you as a random stranger? What is God's invitation to you with everything going on in the world right now as a neighbor to all the people around you? I guess that's how I would characterize calling. There's this component, I think, in what, in what you're talking about of people speaking into your life of, of kind of a relationality uh, that's, that's very present in what you're talking about. And, and I'm thinking of, I think in, in my training as, as a therapist, I, in, in my school, we often talked about this idea that sometimes it's much harder for us to hold our own glory, our own goodness, gifts that we've been given. Sometimes we're the last people to recognize that. And we can't bear the weight of when people name those things to us. I wonder if I'm hearing elements of, of that in what you're talking about. People saying things, I've noticed this in you and your resistance to that. And, and, and I wonder, does that ring true? Like this, this idea of goodness, glory, gifting, being something that, that some often were the last people to wake up to. Wow, you really switched into therapist mode there. Thanks a lot. I did, yeah. <laughs> you really are going for my emotional jugular. It was pretty much beat out of me at an early age, this instinct to accept praise. So there's something in Chinese culture, it's very traditional, where if, for instance, my mom having a conversation with a friend and the friend complimented me, the appropriate response would be to deny the compliment. And this goes back to Chinese belief in evil spirits. So the idea was when someone complimented a child, the parent would need to deflect the compliment so that their child didn't become a target for evil spirits. That's where it comes from. But it's become this cultural habit. So even though we were a Christian, it wasn't out of, maybe it was out of humility, you'd have to ask my mom, but it was a reflex. Oh, Jeffrey's so smart because my family calls me Jeffrey. No, he's not. Well, that does something to you over the years when you hear it over and over and over when praise isn't something that is a part of your life and your emotional diet, right? If every time something good is said, something bad is said to counterbalance it, that changes your psyche. It lodges in your soul. And so I learned to do that work when my parents weren't there. And I think it's still hard for me to receive praise. It's still hard for me to think that I have much good in me. And I didn't even grow up Reformed. I became Reformed later. So I can't blame that. It's a weird thing. To hear you use the word glory makes me deeply uncomfortable because Glory is never a word that a Chinese parent would associate with their child. And by extension, it's never a word that I would associate with myself. It's just kind of a weird word in general, right? To, to apply to someone, glory, I'm glorious. Um, and yet, I, I think we all hold a level of, of glory or being at least transformed into being glorious people. And it's so much easier to focus on the places that are still not transformed yet that we're still working on. A lot of that is the culture of comparison, right? We live in a world where we are bombarded by images and presentations of what should be. 
We see this a lot in the gay community in particular. The image of what a good gay should look like. And I'm I'm keeping it specific to gay men, right? You spend five minutes on Instagram and that can be devastating to your self-image because glory is a very particular chiseled thing. And if you don't live up to that image, if you don't have the characteristics that a certain segment of society has said represent the ideal, what do you do? I still struggle with that. This is making me think of, so I just read your piece that you wrote about learning to love yourself through taking care of some goats. And for context, for, for folks who, who don't know your story, like you, you did, and I would love to hear about this, you did seminary at Princeton Theological at their farminary, which is a working farm, and a school for theological education on a farm. So there's kind of two things in there. There's one, like I would love to hear about the farminary, but also the, the sense of the, the embodiment of interacting with creatures and the ways that that can transform us into difference. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know that I can, want to keep using the word glory, <laughs> but, but in some senses, yes, in, into at least realization in different ways. So I'm going to pull up as any good seminary grad should be able to. A little passage. This is from Job 12, starting at verse 7. But ask Behemoth, and he will teach you the birds in the sky, and they will tell you. Or talk to the earth, and it will teach you. The fish of the sea will recount it for you. Among all these who hasn't known that the Lord's hand did this, in whose grasp is the life of everything, the breath of every person? Doesn't the ear test words and the palate taste food? In old age is wisdom, understanding, and a long life. Hello. It's an interruption. I'm making this a thing now. Let's face it. We all experience sexual shame. Whether we grew up in the repressive purity culture of American evangelical Christianity or not, we've all been taught in subtle and not-so-subtle ways that sex and sexuality, outside of very specific contexts, is immoral and taboo. That's why I wrote my new book, Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. In Beyond Shame, I help you pinpoint the coping mechanisms you use to manage shame, uncover the lies you've been told about sex and sexuality, and then give you a framework for helping you move beyond it. Stop living in shame and fear and move into a life of confidence and flourishing. Sound like something you want? Pick up a copy of Beyond Shame today wherever you buy books. And remember, most local bookstores are shipping faster than the big online stores right now. Okay, that's it. Let's get back to Jeff. So growing up, it was all book knowledge. The idea that the birds in the sky or the earth beneath my feet or the fish in the sea would have anything to teach me, that was unfathomable. Knowledge was in books. And the farminary is the place where I learned, no, it's not all in books. I think it was the first classroom that I was ever in that embodiment was a core principle that much of the time in class was spent not talking, not overtly thinking about theological concepts, but digging and weeding and planting and composting. And so being on that land reconnected me with my body. And so much of being in grad school is about the brain. 
And there were days where you end up feeling like your body is just this thing that carries your brain around. So there was something deeply moving in reminding me that my hands and my arms and my legs and my nose and my eyes, all these things can be part of my learning too. Uh, so let me give you some background. Uh, the farm Nary is a 21-acre sustainable farm. It was a Christmas tree farm before it became the farminary. And it was only a Christmas tree farm because the soil was so poor. And Christmas trees can grow in relatively poor soil. And the soil was so poor because before that, it was a sod farm. And every time you ha harvest sod, every time you send grass to a rich person's lawn, you take a layer of topsoil with that grass. And eventually, there's just not much you can grow on that land. And part of the mission of the farminary is to explore how to regenerate and to re-nourish something that has been damaged, something that has been wounded. The idea is to live into God's invitation for restoration and redemption and to tell each of us that we are invited to participate in restoration. Um, there's a really great passage that a lot of folks might have heard in Sunday school or growing up uh, in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 37, where Ezekiel preaches to a valley of dry bones. And I had heard this passage through so much of my life. You know, I grew up doing Bible drills and this was just routine, right? You hear stories and then you become kind of deaf to them. What I didn't realize until I was on that land is that when God instructs Ezekiel to preach life into those dry bones, to prophesy to them and to restore breath in them, God doesn't need a human being to do that. God can do that work without us. And yet there is that invitation to say to Ezekiel and by extension to us, you can have a part in other people's restoration. You can have a part in other people's well-being. You can have a voice that proclaims to someone else, you are good and you are holy and you are worthy of life and of love. And I think that's something I came to understand at the farminary. I don't come from a farming background. I, I was a kid of the suburbs and the city, and I didn't really know how to grow anything. So the opportunity to be a part of growth, of something beyond myself that ultimately I'm not responsible for, the opportunity to be a part of healing of this piece of land that belonged to an entirely different people from mine, right? It was Lenape land. And then settlers came and took it over. And a lot of history was lost and a lot of heritage was lost. And to have a very small part in trying to right some of those wrongs, that was a real gift. Uh, so last summer, we got to plant a variety of blue corn that had been tended by Lenape people for generations. And even after they had had the land taken from them, um, they lived in what is now New York and New Jersey. After they were sent westward, they held on to some of those seeds and they took them with them. And we were lucky to get some of those blue corn seeds to plant. I don't even like eating corn, but there was something so powerful about planting the seeds back in the place where they had once come from and then harvesting this and charring it on the fire and seeing the beautiful colors which had not been tarnished by our decades of industrialization, right? This heritage that had been preserved and now got to come back to a land, land that was once home. 
to be able to be a part of that process was awesome. So you're describing the, this, this participation in restoration and kind of the ways that you, that you put that into very embodied practice through tending of the earth, which is, is interesting. My mind immediately goes to Genesis when I, when I think about that, but I'm curious what, what it did within you too. I mean, you mentioned even in kind of your, your bio on your website that it, it taught you a lot about life and, and death. And I don't know that you use the, the word seasons, but my mind went to seasons. Um, I, I'm curious, like, how did that kind of transform or work within you and your perspective of, of both yourself and the world? So one of the things I learned at the farm was to appreciate seasons. It's become such a Christianese word. Right. And so there's a part of <laughs> me that self-critiques every time I write an Instagram caption that has the word season in it. But seasons are real, right? Winter's a thing. And one of the things that God has written into the seasons is the cycle of life, death, and resurrection. Life, death, and new life. And it doesn't entirely break down the way we like to believe it does. Because I think sometimes in our imaginations we think there is no life in winter. It's not one cycle. It's overlapping circles of life. Oh my gosh, I'm sounding like I should be on On Being or something, and this is grossing me out. <laughs> but I'm when, loving it. So. <laughs> when you are at the farm, in every season, you can see things that are coming to life, and you can see things that are dying, and then you can see things that are in a process of resurrection. Every single season you see that. So you see these overlapping patterns of life. And I think for me, it called me to maybe what I would call an appropriate sense of smallness. Because you realize on a piece of land, on a farm, there are so many things you can't control and just a few things that you can. And I think I learned to have a sense of wonder. I mean, wonder was a thing that I had lost. So I learned to have a sense of wonder and also appropriate humility with regard to the things that I couldn't control. I can't control the sun. I can't control the rain. I can't control the groundhog that finds a way to dig its way under the fence. And I also learned a greater sense of gratitude for the things that I could control. I can control whether I plant things properly. I can control whether I weed or not. I can control whether I mulch. I can control whether I harvest something when it should be harvested or whether I let it go to seed or whether I'm negligent and just waste some really good bok choy. And that was a powerful thing. Sometimes when I was on the farm, I would get the balance wrong and I would sometimes think, okay, this was a failure. Okay, here's an example. I planted daikon radish. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to do was plant things that honored my heritage. It's great to go to a Chinese grocery store and be able to buy daikon. It's an, an entirely different thing when Chinese New Year rolls around to be able to make the traditional daikon radish cakes and say, I grew this, right? So the first time I tried to plant the daikon, it didn't really grow right. I think it was too hot. I planted it at the wrong time of year. So I screwed up the seasons and it went to flower really fast. It bolted, it grew, lots of leaves. A daikon is supposed to be bigger under the ground than above it, and it just didn't happen right. So I felt like I had failed. I had wasted these seeds. So we just let it go to flower, and 
This is how little I knew about farming. I didn't know it had to go to flour for it to produce seeds. It wasn't until I failed that I learned, oh, this is where the seeds come from. Wait, maybe there's a second chance. The second chance was written into the plant itself. Nothing's wasted. God doesn't make waste. We make waste sometimes. But the story of redemption is already there within the plant. And so the second time around, we didn't have to buy new seeds. We saved the seeds from that quote-unquote failure, and it worked. So that was a, an important lesson for me. We also learned that we could eat the flowers. Google helped with that. So there's a constant learning process. And there have been so many times in my life where I've thought, I've failed. I've failed. That's like a common refrain in my mind. And one of the things the farm taught me was when I say that, to step back and rewind and reimagine because God's economy does not have room for failure. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way, right? I mean that in a hopeful way. There isn't waste. I'm hearing you share these stories and, and can't help but thinking about kind of like the, the particular locatedness of, of where we're recording this. Like we're recording this during the time of COVID-19. I know I'm quarantined. I'm imagining you may be as well. And I'm wondering, without putting like a bow on things, right? Without trying to create some like great meaning. <laughs> but I'm, I'm hearing this language of the things I can control and the things I can't control. Taking ownership and letting go. Maybe ownership isn't the right word. I'm curious, like, do you feel like the farm gave you kind of perspective on when things do get really hard, how to work with that? I would say I liked these stories about the farm and the meaning of this cycle of life, death, and resurrection a lot more three weeks ago than I do now. Before this whole coronavirus thing kicked off, it was much easier to appreciate all these metaphors. And I'm realizing I like the idea and the metaphors of the farm much more than I like the reality of having, having to confront death among us. It's much easier to talk about seasons and life and death and resurrection when it's more of a concept than it is a reality. At the same time, I do think there is something important, especially in a consumer society like America, of acknowledging that there are things we can't control. I don't believe that if you work hard, you can accomplish anything that you want to accomplish. I don't think that this world is fair or just in that way. I do think there is systemic bias. I do think bigotry is a reality that we live with. I do think that inequity is real. I also think we can accept responsibility for certain things. And we constantly have to struggle with the balance, right? Why am I saying the things that I'm saying? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Am I making excuses or am I naming a genuine and real wrong? The motive matters a lot of the time. I think I draw hope from nature. That has been something that has given me strength. I just planted my first seeds in my little indoor growing area on Sunday. It helps me to actually work with the dirt and to plant seeds and to know that probably not all of them will germinate and that's okay. I think seeds are little containers of hope and we need hope right now. The metaphors aren't perfect, right? 
that's the thing about a metaphor. You push it too far, and at a certain point, it won't necessarily work, and you will have a gap between the metaphor and the reality. But I still think the metaphors can be helpful. I still think God put us in a setting that offers us visible representations of what could be. I still think God's invitation, even amidst death, is for us to love better and to help our neighbor live longer, even if that means not going to church on Easter. I think a lot of what you've been you've been saying kind of over the course of this conversation, like the word love has come up a whole lot. And we've we've contrasted that with ideas of comparison and some of some of the difficulties of of what upbringings and and what our world kind of defines as as love in an intellectual sense. And I wonder this is a, this is a massive question. But you you did say at the beginning before I went to the farmery or even in childhood like love was this intellectual thing. I wonder how that has changed as you've learned it in a more embodied way. How do you understand love? Yeah, just a tiny question there, huh? Right, right. <laughs> How do I understand love? I understand love as that friend who sits with you in silence and doesn't try to fill it with words when you're grieving. I understand it as the person who knows you well enough to throw you a blanket even before you say you're cold. I understand it as creating space to just be without judgment. I understand it as righteous indignation, even on Twitter. I understand it now as a much more multifaceted thing than I used to. Sometimes, probably in the best of times, it's beyond words. You can't really fully color in all of what love is. You know it when you feel it. At the same time, I think we spend so much time chasing lesser forms of love. And I pause when I say the word lesser because I'm worried that it'll come across as judgmental. But here's what I mean by that. I have spent so much of my life chasing other people's approval and affection. I took a class in a classroom at Princeton Seminary other than the farminary in which we had to work through a pastoral care case study. And we had to identify what the unmet needs were in the case study. And the other students in the class, they were saying, oh, there's a need for affirmation or there's a need for respect. And the professor wasn't happy with those answers. And she said, yes, that's true, but there's a deeper core need. And it's a deeper core need that all of us has. And I don't know why, but on that day, the other 30 people in the class weren't there. And she was getting a little agitated. And I don't like to talk in class, even though I am having this conversation with you now. I'm a shy introvert who really doesn't love the sound of my own voice. But finally, I said, it's the need to know you matter. And we had been given a list of, of core needs. And she said, yes. And then I felt like it became this classroom where it was one-on-one. -on -one. And I, I bet a lot of us have had those moments where you feel like everybody else disappears. And she said, the problem in the case study is that the person needed to know they mattered, but they were chasing affirmation of that need from other people. And the only possible solution to this is that you need to know you matter to God. And I just started weeping because that for me was probably the first time in my life that in one sentence, someone had captured the struggle. 
I need to believe that I matter to God. That is the essence of a lasting love. Humans have fickle hearts. I don't believe God does. And what I've been chasing for in other people and through other people can only be fully realized once I return to that truth that I am a beloved child of God. And I can intellectualize that and I can preach about it and I can say it to people on Ash Wednesday all day long, you are a beloved child of God. But do I really believe that I matter to God? What's your favorite way for people to find your work? I guess Instagram is fine. It's the place where I feel like I can be most myself because people aren't mean most of the time. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but Instagram's my favorite. There's my book, Does Jesus Really Love Me? I don't know. Google me and you'll figure it out. This is where the self-promotion gets awkward, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. And what's your handle on Instagram and Twitter? On Instagram, I am at ByJeffChu, B-Y-J-E-F-F-C-H-U. And on Twitter, it's just Jeff Chu. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me. This has been lovely. Thank you. I appreciate it. You can find Jeff on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Jeff Chu. On Instagram, at ByJeffChu. And be sure to check out his brand new newsletter, which is available over on Substack. That's jeffchu.substack.com. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support the podcast is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or go to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all. Bye! Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.